Hi there, Dickens Olewe here. Thanks for checking in. This interview is part of a 10-part special series about how the media in Africa covers politics, governance, and elections. With my guest, we'll explore the challenges and ideas of how journalism can support, not undermine democracy. So look out for the other interviews on your podcast feed. Let me know what you think about this series. Okay, here's the pod. Enjoy. There's much more that the media in Africa can do to improve governance. They need to be asking the tough questions to the leadership. They need to be able to address issues of misinformation, disinformation, uh, you know, and, and hate speech. They have the tools. Uh, they don't have to reinvent the tools. They have the tools to be able to address this. So, my name is Rosalyn Akombe. I work uh, with the United Nations uh, Development Program managing the governance and peace building work in Africa, based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. You recently wrote this article, and the title is A Renewed Discourse on Managing Inclusive Transitions in Africa. So could you just unpick that for me? Why is that conversation important, and what issues are you trying to address here? You know, as uh, we highlighted in the article that uh, written by myself and my colleague Jide, who manages our regional program. We are seeing trends in the African continent, uh, increasing trend in, in transitions and different types of transitions. Um, there are democratic transitions where you have elections that have taken place. You have cases of unconstitutional changes of power. And, uh, you know, Guinea is our list, latest example and uh, a trend that we don't necessarily look forward to having more in the continent, having seen you know, three uh, unconstitutional changes of power in just five months this year alone. Um, And then, of course, there are those political transitions that take place in the context of either, you know, uh, president dying in office or uh, resignation, which is quite a lower number than all the others, about 10% uh, in the continent. But, you know, it's this that triggered us to think about Are we prepared as the United Nations, are we prepared as the United Nations Development Program to accompany the countries, to provide the support that is required uh, during these delicate moments? Because there are moments of vulnerability, but also moments of opportunity where new leaders uh, can uh, embrace change, can embrace a different way of handling development, and, uh, and, and move forward. And we've seen it. We've seen it in cases in which we have invested in, in accompanying governments and supporting governments during transitions and how successful that is. But the question we've been really grappling is, what makes transitions successful, political transitions successful in a certain context and, and, and why are they not successful in other cases? And, and, and what we have seen, at least from the trends so far, is that, uh, it doesn't really matter whether the country is high income, middle income or low income, uh, that the challenges, uh, at least that's one data point that is very clear, that the challenges arise, whether you, you're dealing with the, uh, you know, it's the economic status of the country does not uh, directly translate to, um, you know, a successful political transition. So, mm-hmm. so that's really what has to get us to, to really write that article, but also have an, a dedicated uh, a program within UNDP uh, that looks at uh, managing inclusive transitions. Okay. And you've just talked about vulnerabilities and opportunities. Can you 
just talk a little bit about uh, what you see there. Well, in terms of uh, vulnerabilities, I mean, any change that comes to any country is, is requires delicate management uh, because there will always be those. There's always an, a political economy to any change that happens. And so handling that political economy is really critical uh, to ensuring that um, that, that, that the country does not lapse into, into conflict and managing because there are people, there are winners and losers in any, in any, in any transition. Uh, you know, there are, there are people who will be in and there are people who are going to be out. And so how you manage those relations in a way uh, that doesn't undermine uh, the democratic gains and the development gains in the country is one thing that we've been looking at very carefully. I mean, opportunities exist. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, the, the recent uh, political transition in, in Zambia and you listen to how the president is framing the challenge he has is specifically on the economy. And, and, and this is where UNDP can commit to work with the government in Zambia uh, in looking at, uh, you know, what might work in the context of, of Zambia in its development agenda. And so, so that's what I mean by vulnerabilities and opportunities that exist. Why is there a lot of focus on transitions, elections, but then after the fact, after the election, then that interests a kind of tepers. And, and, and that's kind of the crucial moment in a democracy after the election. I mean, is what I've said something of a concern? And how do you address it if it is? That is a concern. I mean, when, uh, you know, we've seen in many cases that um, during elections is a lot of attention that is paid to countries. Uh, but after that, uh, the attention shifts to where the next election is going to be held. And, and what we are trying to do at uh, the United Nations Development Program is to ensure that um, for us, we maintain the focus because we are in the countries when the elections are being are taking place before elections and afterwards, uh, being the only United Nations agency that has a presence in almost all the countries, uh, we have the advantage then of being able to be there and to accompany the, the governments uh, and, and the peoples of those countries throughout. And, and why we are trying to, you know, what, what we are trying to do is to ensure that that focus then doesn't shift, uh, that, that we continue the accompaniment throughout the process. Uh, after the elections, before the elections, and while the elections are taking place. And yeah, you're absolutely right. That happens all the time. Uh, we, 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 especially the media, quickly moves on to the next uh, big issue in the world and, and forgets that, uh, you know, with an election, uh, with a new leader in place, the work has just begun. It's not over. I'm really curious about your kind of report card of how the media has cover democracies on, uh, on the continent and what role uh, as an organization you see them playing in kind of achieving the goals you want to achieve on the continent? I mean, we see, we see the media as an important player. I mean, when you're talking about uh, democracy and you're looking at the various guardrails that ensure that a democracy functions, the media is a, has a central role to play. And I think in the continent, for various reasons, uh, the, the media has um, has had its um, challenges in being able to play that role uh, of of, uh, of being, uh, as you always say, the fourth estate. Uh, it's 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 a, it's a it's a function that uh, differs from country to country. I mean, Africa is very diverse. Um, you know, uh, you know, the ownership of media is is 
plays a big role in how the media handles and in issues. I recall being in Sierra Leone a few months ago and speaking with different um, media uh, organizations and how they were decrying the increase in ownership of uh, media houses by politicians and uh, making the professionalization of uh, media coverage very, very tricky for them. And, and so, and we see that increasingly, whether you're looking at, uh, you know, Kenya, you're looking at, uh, at uh, Sierra Leone that I've just mentioned, or Tanzania, you, you see the, the ownership of the media houses has implications on how uh, the, 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 the news is covered and, and the questions that are asked. And, and, and so I think it's, uh, you know, that's a big challenge that we have. And how do you divest that ownership to, to be able to develop independent media that is able to be perceived by citizens as really uh, being a voice of reason, but also bringing objectivity to how issues are reported, especially in very polarized societies. And, and we've seen that polarization increasing in several in several African countries. Kind of related to that is the issue of uh, misinformation and disinformation uh, in democracies. And I know you've uh, kind of been traveling around the continent seeking views on, on some of the, uh, the projects you're working on. And how are you specifically addressing this? Because it's become um, a bit of a problem. So in the last, um, you know, three months or so, we have been undertaking a process we are calling reimagining governance and peace building in Africa and listening to voices across the continent uh, using about uh, 10 experts from each of the sub-regions and listening to, you know, constituencies, different people, people we don't always speak to. Uh, in asking uh, various questions on, on governance. And the issue of misinformation, disinformation, hate speech has come up top in all the conversations, regardless of whether you're talking about uh, Central Africa, whether you are in Southern Africa, Eastern Africa, or West Africa. And this is an issue that uh, we see as a huge concern uh, for us uh, who work on, on development, for us who work on peace and security issues, for us who work on governance because it distorts uh, a lot of things. Um, it has uh, amplified, and when we've seen it in the case of, uh, of COVID-19, how it has made it extremely difficult for governments and um, stakeholders to address the issue of COVID-19 because of the misinformation, disinformation that goes out. We are also seeing more and more use of it uh, in the context of elections. Uh, whereby, uh, you know, it's much cheaper now to be able to manipulate uh, populations by spending, what, $15 uh, a day uh, on a person to carry out campaigns uh, of uh, disinformation, mostly. I mean, we're seeing states actively involved in disinformation. We are seeing non-state actors actively involved in disinformation. And that has, that has a huge implication on trust in institutions, on trust in processes, which obviously undermines democracy, undermines governance, undermines um, really a space for people to engage. But it's also the responses that we see from governments in the name of fighting disinformation, uh, whereby uh, you know they end up also restricting further civic space by the sort of um, uh, cyber security um, laws that they put in place. So, so, so in a way, you have uh, this uh, conundrum where on one end, 
you see digital technologies being used, uh, you know, opening up space, providing space actually for citizen engagement. You are still seeing them being used for purposes of disinformation, misinformation and hate speech. And you're seeing states using those excuses in some cases to restrict civic space by using um, uh, the cybersecurity laws. How uh, does, uh, you know, these institutions um, that kind of, you know, the guardrails of democracy, as you call them, how do they maintain trust in a way that citizens will obviously engage with them and try and kind of build countries and societies uh, in which can uh, you know effectively uh, deal with this growing problem of uh, misinformation. That's one of the things that we've been grappling with, even within us, within uh, UNDP. Uh, how do we how do we ensure that the institutions we support, because we we are a member state entity, we we are an entity that uh, works directly with member states member states uh, who in whom most cases its citizens uh, have questions on, on, on trust, where we see frayed uh, social contracts and um, questions about uh, you really even to the point of uh, the legitimacy of the leadership in, in, in a lot of those contexts. So what we have been doing as UNDP is increasing really uh, platforms of engagement because I think that's the communication, the two-way communication is one that uh, you really, you know, that, that, that we need to encourage because that's how you build trust is by engaging, by reaching out, uh, by listening, but also by changing our approach to governance. And that's one of the things that, uh, you know, in the reimagining governance, uh, um, you know, discussions or uh, um, process that we have engaged it, is, in, is how we start changing even our own institutions to be more people-centered, to take a, a more people-centered approach to governance, to look at ways in which, you know, and we, we have seen there are some states in which, uh, you know, there's a lot of trust. Uh, citizens have trust in those, uh, in those uh, institutions, in those organizations. So there are things we can learn from what is it that has helped a particular institution to have uh, to maintain the trust of, uh, of, of, of citizens. I mean, I was looking at a study that was carried out uh, not long ago where many, in, that, that was surprising to me actually, that uh, if you conduct, if you look at uh, the various tools of, uh, that are available in the media, citizens still trust radio be, be, you know, above uh, what they see on the internet or what they read in the newspapers. That tells us something. That if we invest, uh, you know, what is it that community radios and radios in general have done well that have ensured that citizens still have trust in them? And how can we use, you know, what we see from, from those uh, situations to be able to then uh, build trust in, in institutions like ourselves, but also helping our member states to engage with citizens to build that trust. Just going back to our discussion about uh, uh, the media and the kind of information ecosystem has changed so much. Uh, There's been some some serious disruption. Uh, The main players, yes, some of them are still there, but they are not their gender setters. So right now you have a situation where citizens are content creators. Um, and in your article, you talked about partnerships with the media. And I'm just wondering, is that partnership also considering the fact that, uh, you know, this environment has changed and now 
their new players who are just almost in a way as uh, influential uh, as the mainstream media. Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the landscape has changed. And that's why actually we got one of the reasons, the justifications for us getting into this reimagining governance and peace building process was the recognition that the actors have changed, that the state is not the only actor that we have, that uh, the mainstream media is not the only actor that we have, and, and thus the need to reach out and, and engage with others. So we do recognize that, uh, that we have uh, different stakeholders. And, and, and in many cases, you see uh, citizens, as you put it, are, citizens, uh, are content creators, where you will find a story that is uh, you know, starts off by people on social media and then it ends up picking up uh, in, in mainstream media. So they're they the ones that generate the story. They're the ones that generate the ideas and then the ideas move on to the to mainstream media. And I think that's, uh, that, that, that is, uh, you know, that is, that is good for citizen engagement in our view, uh, you know, getting, you know, platforms where citizens can be able to organize themselves to be able to address uh, the governance and peace building constraints that they may have in their countries. But that doesn't excuse the mainstream media from playing its role. I think, I think it, 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 it puts more responsibility on mainstream media in Africa to up its game, to be able to, to uh, frame the issues uh, in, in ways because, uh, you know, 140 characters is not enough, uh, uh, you know, content really, uh, you know, and there's, there's still much more that uh, the, the mainstream media, whether it's uh, print media, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, radio, television, there's much more that the media in Africa can do to improve governance. They need to be asking the tough questions to the leadership. They need to be able to address issues of misinformation, disinformation, uh, you know, and, and hate speech. They have the tools. Uh, they don't have to reinvent the tools. They have the tools to be able to address this. It's just having the political will and the commitment and recognize the responsibility that they have in the continent. Um, you know, to be able to improve on governance, to be able to improve on, on issues of democracy. Now, as somebody who's, uh, you know, run uh, elections before and as a governance uh, expert, uh, what would be your tips, uh, you know, to kind of, I'm just imagining lots of journalists listening to this and wondering, what should we take in the next election in our country? What are the ways of reporting uh, that we should add in our toolkit so that, you know, the output obviously ends up not undermining democracy, as we've been talking about, but, uh, you know, kind of providing a positive uh, backing for democracy? I mean, I think the media has an important role to play in elections in, in, in Africa. And, and that's why I'm heading back to Sierra Leone uh, next week. Uh, to work with our team in Sierra Leone on looking at how we can support uh, not only the country office, but also the media organizations. One of the meetings that I'll be having there uh, will be with the various media organizations precisely as we prepare for the elections in 2023 in Sierra Leone. But that applies to all countries, including Kenya, whose, whose elections are coming up, and, 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 and many other countries that we have. And, and we have a long list in 2021 or 20, and 2022. I think for me, maybe three things. I think the first is, uh, is uh, ensuring that there is a fair playing ground for all the different um, uh, candidates that you have out there. You know, in many of these countries, the media frames uh, the candidates and says, and, and, and you will hear in most cases where the media or, or, 
almost makes it look like it's, uh, it's uh, you know, presents a fait accompli. There are only two candidates, there are only two horses in this race. And you forget to cover all the other candidates that are in a, in a race, it's a presidential race or, uh, or at, a, at a lower level, but giving an opportunity, voice to all the other different um, uh, candidates that are there so that citizens are able to see that they have alternatives rather than being presented uh, as though they, they, they don't have many other choices. And yet there are several people who have, in most contexts, in most of the African countries, you will see that there are more than two candidates. But in most, in the coverage, you will see the coverage only covers two. And that becomes unfair to citizens, becomes unfair to democracy, because it limits the choices uh, by already giving airtime and, uh, and space to, to only two candidates, when you actually have several candidates, whether you are looking at Sierra Leone or you're looking at, uh, at uh, Zambia in the last election or, 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 or any other that we've had, there are always more than two candidates. But the, the way the media frames it does look like you have a limited choice of candidates to pick from. The, the second uh, for me is, um, is really being able to ask the tough questions to institutions and not giving institutions an easy pass, uh, whereby institutions end up looking like they're victims. They're not victims, they are players. Uh, they're active players in an electoral process, whether it's an election management body, whether it's, uh, whether it's, the, it's, the, it's the security institutions, they're active players, they're not victims in the process. And so asking the tough questions that allow the citizens to be able to understand uh, what is going on, to be able to breaking down some of those uh, technical uh, questions that are presented uh, around elections uh, to, to in ways in which people can understand. So, so, so that's, that's for me is really important. And the third is really providing space for young people and women, uh, their voices to be heard. I think the, the media could play a much bigger role in that, especially because we are dealing in a context in which uh, in, in Africa, we only have 25% of women being in, in, in parliament, for instance. This is a continent where 60% uh, of, uh, of, of the populations are, of the population is uh, people who are 24 and, and, and below. And so giving space for young, voice, young people's voices, um, giving agency to young people, giving agency to women by, by, you know, by covering their stories, by covering their experiences, I, I see those uh, that as useful. So those are the three key things for me uh, I, I would think that would be important for any media covering uh, issues of elections in Africa in, in the coming year uh, or two years. Is there anything as a perfect election? Look, there isn't anything. I mean, there, there isn't anything like a perfect election. And, uh, and we always, uh, you know, I, those of us who work on governance and election always remind people that... Uh, it's not the technical part, uh, you know, we, we focus sometimes on the technicalities and forget that it's about ensuring that the environment, the political and socioeconomic environment under which elections are held, uh, you know, are conducive, uh, that they allow for citizen engagement, that they allow for people to have a fair chance of, uh, of, of, of expressing their will. Uh, and, and, and so in my view, I mean, you look at the elections in 1994 in uh, South Africa, those were some of the most technically, array, uh, technically uh, you know, 
difficult selections. I mean, if you look at how the, the technical part of those elections, uh, you know, if you had them being held right now in, in South Africa, nobody would maybe, you know, people would question the result. But because the, the environment, the political environment under which those elections were being held uh, were understood and that people understood that these were technical deficiencies, they were not deliberate technical hurdles that were being put to make the election difficult or, or to manipulate the results, uh, it became unacceptable. The results were acceptable. So we know that, uh, you know, having a technically competent electoral process is not equal to having the free expression, the expression of the, uh, the will of the people. And so it's for me what is important and, and that's what we try to do at UNDP is to try to work with various stakeholders to ensure that the environment under which elections are held would be able to ensure that the will of the people and democracy reigns. And that's really what we work on, both the technical side where we provide support to election management bodies and other institutions that are working on elections, but also working with the states and the other stakeholders to ensure that the environment under which those elections happen would lead to you know, a sense that, that the people's will uh, was uh, prevailed. And my last question is just kind of uh, what related to what you said about um, the kind of work you'll be doing in Sierra Leone. Um, is there any uh, tangible, tangible support that uh, UNDP uh, can give or is giving to uh, the media on the continent uh, in regard to uh, reporting elections? Yes, in, in various contexts, we do have, uh, we, we have uh, projects or programs that are specific to support to, to, to media uh, and, and to, be, to media organizations. This differs from one country to another. There are countries in which um, there is no support because the capacities in those countries, uh, you know, are sufficient. Um, you know, you look at a big country like South Africa, uh, we wouldn't be required to be providing that kind of support there. But uh, depending on the country that we're dealing with, we do have programs that are very specific to providing support to, to uh, media organizations and, uh, and, 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 and the media in general. Uh, we are involved in many cases in trying to look at uh, the, especially their principles or um, you know, training uh, various uh, media reporters and media organizations on election principles. We, 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 we are very involved, actually, this is a very important point that I should mention. We are very involved in uh, addressing issues of misinformation, disinformation. We have just launched uh, uh, an initiative called I Verify. Uh, that we first uh, employed in Zambia, and it was quite successful. We are learning lessons from there. And it's basically working with media organizations uh, to be able to fact check. And we're working very close with fact check, um, the entity uh, in Africa that is, is doing a terrific job on, on addressing this information. But yeah, so we, we have iVerify as one of the ways in which we're working directly with media organizations in context of elections where we have an election project. And it's not in every place that we have election project, as you might be aware. It all depends on the requests that we receive from, from member states. This interview is part of a 10-part special series about how the media in Africa covers politics, governance, elections, and the impact this has on democracy on the continent. 
if you want to subscribe to my podcast just search for the dickens olewe podcast on any of the main podcast apps let me know what you think about the series reach out to me on twitter my handle is at dickens olewe until next time bye bye